This is Oren Herskowitz, Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures at Columbia University in the city of New York. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Wendy Chung. Dr. Chung is the Kennedy Family Professor of Pediatrics at Columbia University Irving Medical Center, and also a terrifying array of other leadership roles in genetics, pediatrics, diabetes, and obesity, and more. We'll be talking about what it means to be a so-called zebra hunter, and how that's led her to discover dozens of previously unidentified rare genetic diseases. The impact that earlier diagnosis and gene therapy has had on devastating childhood diseases such as spinal muscular atrophy, or SMA, which previously was a death sentence to newborns, and the ways that genes are involved in obesity, autism, autonomic disorders, and so much more. Dr. Jung, thanks so much for joining us today. I, I guess, you know, maybe just to give our listeners some context, I've heard you describe yourself as a zebra hunter, and, and I've heard the explanation of that, but maybe to give our listeners a bit of insight into what goes on in the Chung Lab at Columbia, um, what do you mean by a zebra hunter? And, and maybe you can give us an example of one of the zebras you've hunted. Sure. So um, there is a saying in medicine, when you hear hoofbeats, you should think about horses. You shouldn't think about zebras. So in other words, what's common tends to be common when we make diagnoses. On the other hand, although that's generally true, there are zebras out there. So there are individuals um, who have unusual and rare conditions. And we appreciate that about 10% of the world actually has a rare genetic condition. So although they're individually rare, uh, as a herd, the zebras are common. And with that, then, one of the challenges is there's, these conditions are so rare that the average doctor doesn't see even one of them in their entire career. So they may not recognize them. So there have been a group of um, us in genetics in particular, because many of these, although not all of them are genetic conditions, uh, a group of us who are referred the rare and undiagnosed patients. And, and our goal is oftentimes to try and understand what those conditions are. Uh, and that serves the role of eventually getting to treatments. And, and we'll be talking more about that. But for my laboratory, um, I'm a bit unusual in the sense that I always start and end with a patient, and I'm a physician scientist. So individual patients come to me, and I take the research in my laboratory where clinical medicine ends. So it's very much a, we start with everything we can do with routine clinical care. When that isn't advanced enough, we take those individuals with their permission into the laboratory to understand and find what they have. And then uh, I'm excited that even more so recently, we've tried to actually come up with treatments for those conditions they have and bring those ultimately back to the patient. So um, those, those zebras uh, very fondly are my patients. And does that imply that, uh, I mean, of the patients you, you treat, how many of them, what percentage of the patients would you say turns out to be, I mean, either, I'll just extend the analogy, either a horse or, or a known zebra? Right. And what percentage of the patients do you see are, you know, end up being a mystery, end up being something that actually requires you to go down that rabbit hole. Yep. So this has changed over time. So if I look back over the last 20 years, as an example, when I first started doing this, our tools in genetics were quite blunt. And so many of the diagnoses we were made were our best guess in terms of a clinical diagnosis, but I couldn't put my finger on the, if you will, genetic code that was changed to be able to cause that. And so I remember actually very fondly from my first night as being on call as an intern 
barn where literally I came across one of these zebras and a little boy with hyperammonemia. And uh, we started, you know, down the road of trying to use all our regular clinical tools to diagnose him. And I came up empty handed. And that was um, something that happened literally thousands of times. And so over time, I've been a bit of a collector, if you will, in terms of keeping information on those individuals, again, with their permission. And I was, I think, wise enough to say at the beginning that even though I, in the current state, didn't have a solution, I could imagine a future state where we would be able to diagnose those conditions because I knew about the Human Genome Project and when we would eventually have the human DNA sequence. And so I started um, collecting samples from those individuals and over time have repeatedly gone back to some individuals. I, I met for the first time 25 years ago, some people 25 days ago, but um, that, if you will, how easy or difficult it's been to understand those using clinical tools and research tools has changed over time. So where my batting average 20 years ago might have been 2%, uh, my batting average today, depending on what you come to me with, may be anywhere from 20 to 50%, again, depending on, on what symptoms you have. But importantly, it's still not 100%. And really, with no condition, do I know every gene causing any particular symptom or, or clinical diagnosis. And so, we always are at that cutting edge to try and use the newest diagnostic tools, um, whether it's very fancy things like not just um, sort of the standard way of reading out your genome, but even new methods that are being able, being developed to read your genome, to look at other things beyond that, but constantly pushing that frontier. And um, I anticipate that I'll never solve uh, the ant get the answer for every single one of my patients, but uh, we are trying to get it at least for the majority. I, I have so many questions stemming from that, but let, uh, just before we move on, does that, do you, do you, do you feel that as it, as frustrating that you, that even with all the advances that have been made, um, you, you're still not anywhere close to a hundred percent and may never get there? Or is that exciting because it means there's so many challenges and puzzles left to, to unlock? A bit of both. Um, I'd say definitely a bit of both. And to give you some sense of the, um, this may scare people a bit, but the sample sizes that we need to be able to get anywhere close to that 100% um, can sometimes be in the hundreds of thousands of individuals. And these, of course, are not all my patients per se, but uh, research participants that we have from around the world all working together to understand this. So let me just give you an example. Uh, autism is a relatively common condition. About 2% of individuals have autism. And a lot of patients come to me seeking a diagnosis for their child's autism. Um, with that, right now, I can explain about 20% of those individuals, give them a single gene as an answer for what's causing their symptoms. That still means my batting average, if you think of it realistically, is not that great. There's still 80% of individuals that we can't understand. So realizing that, I started a very large study um, called SPARC in which we've literally enrolled over, to date, over 100,000 individuals in the United States with autism to try and be able to get at this. And so we've tried, I, I think in the, at this point in my career, I think about scale. I think about how, to, how the lessons I've learned from treating individual people, how can I scale that so that I don't just treat one person at a time, but can I treat literally whole communities or come up with answers for whole communities at a time. So 
the thing that we've realized for many conditions like this is they're complicated. They're not actually just one gene. And herein lies the complexity. It may be a combination of genes, maybe a combination of genes and exposures over a lifetime. In particular, as trained as a pediatrician, I appreciate that there are certain really critical times in one's life where things are developing and changing and certain exposures or certain um, things that happen to the body over that particular time can have a profound influence long term. So, it's a complicated puzzle, as you said, but um, that's what, what keeps me active. Um, I, I inherently love puzzles, and, and uh, genetics has been sort of my lifelong puzzle. Right. I, I, I think, I, as you, you know, as, as you know, but I'll, I'll tell the listeners, um, you're actually you you in your your lab uh, treated my younger daughter um, who has a disease called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or POTS, and. It's it's a it's an illness that can have a lot of different causes. It's more of a syndrome, so it's a collection of of symptoms. Um, and I remember when we were working with your office and and waiting for the test results back. Um, you you said something about how it's always a little bit of a good news and good news bad news scenario. That on one hand, you know, if it does turn out to be a genetic cause, at least you have an answer. On the other hand, coming up with that genetic cause may not mean that there's a solution and may actually have other, even more severe implications. Um, so when you do go through these, when you do do these tests on patients, um, is it, you know, how often is it that there's a, that there's sort of a, that there's a therapy or cure or anything that can come out of the answers that come back from your lab? That's a great question. If you look writ large um, at all genetic conditions, cure with a capital C. Uh, in other words, I can just wave some sort of magic wand and literally make it go away is is very unusual. Um, there are very few circumstances where literally I can completely cure something. Um, there may be about 10% or so of the time where we've got really, really good treatments though. So it may require, like with many chronic diseases like diabetes or high blood pressure, may require chronic therapy um, or interventions of some sort, screening in some cases, uh, even even surgical treatments, but you know, about 10% of the time, I think we've got something really good that we can do. The exciting thing for me, though, is that although that also means that for uh, not 90% of patients, but 90% of conditions, and that's an important distinction, but for 90% of conditions, we still really don't have effective treatments means there's a lot of work to be done. And we may get into it later, but um, the exciting thing for me is that more and more companies are devoted to rare diseases and developing that uh, treatments for rare diseases. And some conditions which we thought were not treatable, I'll give you one example, a condition called achondroplasia, um, which is a condition associated with short stature and a bone condition we now have a treatment for so that um, not everyone will use it and not everyone is an age that it's appropriate, but we now have treatments for conditions like that, that when I was a resident, for instance, I couldn't imagine how you were going to do that other than terrible, in my opinion, uh, bone lengthening procedures that were very, very painful. So um, the other part of this that I'll say in terms of hope and optimism is that I think we're going to make literally quantum leaps forward, or, or this is going to be a step function is the way I describe it to people. That is that there are enabling technologies um, that are going to be transformative and not treat one condition at a time, but treat whole classes of genetic conditions. And so uh, a large part of what I see the community 
what we need to do right now is what I call getting everyone to the starting line. That is getting all of the conditions cataloged to know what they are, being able to get everyone a diagnosis, if it is genetic, to be able to use those tools to do it expeditiously so that we can get on to the treatments. And that when these treatments that do involve things like gene therapy, gene editing, but things to be able to correct genes uh, or add genes or manipulate genes, once those enabling technologies are available, we can just one by one, you know, just boom, 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 go down the list. And and I, I can see a time when we will be able to do that. That's amazing. I, 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 you mentioned earlier, I'm just to follow up on that. Um, uh, in, in some of my prior conversations with scientists at Columbia, I've talked about, I've heard about, um, you know, that just underlying all these, these amazing scientific breakthroughs are really two fairly pedestrian things. It's, it's essentially um, research tools and money. Um you know, and the funding that you need to get there. So I'm going to touch on both of those uh, for a little bit. But starting with the tools, I mean, in some ways, it's like, uh, um, you know, the 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 engine and the gears and the transmission, you know, of, of a car. Um, uh, the that the, there's research tools and fairly, you know, engineering essentially advances that unlock a whole new field of opportunities for understanding the underlying biology, which might then go back and inspire the development of, of new engineering tools. And so it sounds like from what you're saying, the last, so far in your career, there's been a huge increase in what the engineering tools allow you to do. But it sounds like you think that we're not even close to being done with that yet either. Is that, am I hearing that right? Yeah. So, um, you're right that technology drives a lot of this. And so I say this because there are um, people with really out-of-the-box ideas that we need to have mechanisms for them to explore and, and to be able to test those out. And it may only be that 5 or 10% of them pan out. Um, but on the other hand, when they do pan out, and I've seen that in my own field, um, the impact is just astronomical. So the first change really came um, in terms of technology for sequencing, for being able to read out the DNA. And there's a lot of chemistry involved in that. There's technology in terms of um, optical readers, you know, lots of engineering, in other words, that goes behind this. And iteratively, you make improvements. And that's another big theme in this is that, you know, the idea is there to start with. And, you know, the first one is clunky and really not you know, doesn't work very well. And so there have been multiple sequencing technologies that have come out, some of which have lived, some of which have died. Uh, I think there are going to be even more that continue to come out. And we have Based on the technologies we've all used, certain uh, biases in terms of what we see and certain blind spots in terms of what we haven't seen. And I think in terms of the genome, we need to fill those blind spots. We need to make sure we have really accurate representation and we need to be able to bring down the cost of sequencing. And that, that I predict is going to happen actually fairly shortly. Um, with that, and again, part of this is my goal, if you've got a you know, diagnosis, like that's got to be trivialized. That's got to be on scale. Everyone should have access to this equitably. It shouldn't cost very much to do it, and we should be able to get on to supporting people once they know exactly what we need to support. And the point is, is that everyone who presents with a certain symptom, everyone who has diabetes, really shouldn't be treated the same way. There are certain people with diabetes who actually need no treatment whatsoever, believe it or not. Um, others who are going to have a degenerative course that's not going to include just diabetes, but will actually include neurological degeneration as well. And we're fighting for their lives with a ticking clock in the back of my head. So, you 
you know, it's very, for each condition you can come up with, cancer, diabetes, autism, you know, epilepsy, um, they're really, we use the term precision medicine uh, somewhat as a cliche, and I think it's overused, but it really is true that we have to individualize this based on the underlying diagnosis, and we've got to get to that diagnosis expeditiously. So that's what, you know, is the first stage of this. The second part, which you also alluded to in terms of the technology, the enabling technology, is really about, I'll just call it genetically-based treatments. And there are all sorts of people working on incredibly neat technology about everything from delivery, how do you get it to the right, right part of the body, to the right cell. So even within a particular tissue, how do you get it to the right cell at the right time? And that becomes, again, is sort of hand-in-hand hand with diagnosis. We have to get there early because if the organ is already essentially burned out, it may be too late for us to use our fancy genetic therapies. We've got to get there early enough and at the right time. And and I would argue in some cases even pre-symptomatically if you want to think about diseases like Alzheimer's. So there's all of that and we have to do it in a way that's not going to be harmful, that isn't going to in and of itself cause other things. It needs to be safe and efficacious. So tall orders and before we do it on, you know, 10% of the population with rare genetic diseases, uh, you know, we need to be able to have some success stories. But we, we do have some of our first success stories with conditions like spinal muscular atrophy um, that I think are a real beacon in terms of what's possible for the future. Well, so maybe just to make this real for those of us in the audience who don't have a scientific background, maybe we can follow one of those. I mean, you're not a specific patient, but but if a patient comes and presents to themselves to you with what you suspect to be, let's it could be SMA, spinal muscular atrophy, or, or a different genetic um, disease for which there's now something approaching uh, therapy or a cure, um, what happens? So, you know, what tests do you run? How does that work? How long does that take? And what kinds of therapies are actually used in addressing these genetic diseases? Yeah. I'm going to give two examples because you mentioned SMA, and I think it's uh, a particular, particularly good example. So, I'll start with that, and then I'll, I'll go to something else. So, um, when I started this, as you said, I would have babies that would come to me very weak, and we would have a differential diagnosis that would include several things, one of which was spinal muscular atrophy or SMA. And I have to admit, I absolutely hated giving that diagnosis because uh, for the babies that were the most severely impaired, those with type 1 SMA, it was a death sentence. They were literally six feet under in a little miniature coffin by their first birthday, before their first birthday, and it was just heart-wrenching. Um, and we took that experience, though, and it was a very powerful motivating factor. And um, I, I'm going to give the first of my allusions to an ecosystem, which I think is important. Um, uh, really driven, I want to give credit to two family groups, um, the SMA Foundation and uh, Lauren Eng and her husband, uh, Denikar Singh, were real movers in this area. And then also Cure, what became Cure SMA, another, again, parent advocacy group. Um, you know, they really pushed and it took 10 hard years of really pushing the basic science and understanding what we needed for clinical trials, but providing a lot of key infrastructure. And at the end of the 10 years, we got to eventually what are now three different FDA approved treatments for SMA. And that death sentence for what used to be, past tense, used to be the most common genetic cause of death uh, for children under two years of age. We now have built, uh, very long story short, the infrastructure whereby we do newborn screening for all of the children, all of the babies in this next generation who would be born with SMA 
because it's a degenerative disease. That is, it starts, you start losing those neurons, those brain cells, or those um, sort of cells that make the muscles strong and makes them move. You lose them uh, from essentially the day you're born, that process starts. And we need to, the intervention, the treatment really works before you lose those cells. Once you lose them, it's, it's too late. And so we now have in place a scalable solution where we leave no baby behind. Every single baby gets equally and effectively screened. And we now have a one and done gene therapy. So when we identify those babies, even within the first week of life, they get to one of our centers. Literally, we put an IV in, we infuse a few a few milliliters of a gene therapy that replaces the gene, puts back the gene that they're missing permanently, one and done to be able to do that. And these children, some of my oldest patients now having benefited from these treatments are now in first grade and they're strong. They're not hospitalized. They're not breathing on ventilators. They look like other kids at the playground. It, it really is a miracle in terms of being able to see that. Um, and that type of story is, you know, we think about, or I think about that a lot in terms of how do we scale that from one condition to now, you know, potentially 10,000 conditions. The more usual story, as you were alluding to, is that someone's coming in with symptoms already. And in many cases, uh, there may be one symptom, but it can map to potentially hundreds of different diseases, even some of which we don't yet know. So that same child who might come to me today in terms of muscle weakness, I'll look and they'll say, well, you got screened for SMA. It's not SMA, uh, but what might it be? And so uh, we try and come up with a diagnosis as rapidly as possible. With COVID, we've tried, we've learned in a good way to be able to do even some of this with telemedicine to increase our reach. We sometimes use blood. We sometimes use a swab in the cheek, like you may have seen on CSI, um, but to be able to get a sample. And we've tried to decrease the turnaround time from what used to be three months to when we need to for very, very sick patients, um, even as few as five to seven days. And in some cases, uh, we use whatever tools are necessary, and that goes goes to all the way to reading out uh, 3 billion base pairs of the genome uh, to be able to understand all the genes and make sure we don't miss anything as we're being comprehensive. So we can do anything from something very targeted to something ginormous. And as I was alluding to, if the clinical care, if the clinical lab doesn't come up with an answer, then at Columbia, we don't stop. We keep pushing on and looking at those um, undiagnosed patients to come up with the answers that Sometimes we get right away. Sometimes it takes years, but eventually we hope we, we usually get there. Yeah. I actually said, just as an aside, this is going to sound like a commercial for the medical center and it's not meant to be, but, but that is certainly the case here. As I mentioned, you know, earlier when, when the genetic test came back for, for my daughter and didn't have a cause, um, that didn't mean the doctors at Columbia stopped. And it was amazing to see the, uh, the, you know, the department of pediatrics was unbelievable between gastroenterology and cardiology and just kept looking until there were, uh, some answers that we could live with, which was, which was great. Um, uh, you know, when you think about all the things you just mentioned in terms of both the diagnostics and also the therapies, um, I know it can feel from a patient perspective, like you, you know, you do the cheek swab, you send it off and then you have to wait weeks. How could you possibly have to wait weeks? This is, you know, this is taking forever. But when you flash back to the beginning of your career, uh, you know, a few decades ago, um, how long would some of this have taken? And could you even have like, what, what parts of what you just described wouldn't even have been doable? 
So 20 years ago, none of this was possible. 20 years ago, we didn't even know the gene for SMA, so we couldn't have done anything that I talked about. So this has really been powered by the Human Genome Project and having that, um, if you will, dictionary available, that reference library available to be able to look up the sequences. And we're still not done. Um, one of the things that's really important to me now is that when I look at my patients, I'm not able to read out their DNA with the same fidelity. So in other words, if you happen to derive your ancestry from England or Finland, I'm, I can do a pretty good job, not perfect, but pretty good job of telling you what your DNA means. Um, if you happen to be, though, from, I don't know, Nigeria, as an example, I'm just not as equipped to be able to read out that sequence. I don't know enough about the normal genetic variation for individuals, for instance, from Nigeria to know what's something that's disease-associated and what's simply just a normal genetic variation but in that population. So one thing we're working really hard at, and I would say, you know, one of the reasons I love being in New York City is because of the diversity we have in so many different dimensions. Um, and this really pushes me personally to make sure that what we do in genetics is inclusive and making sure that we are equitably able to provide information, again, because it's just the start to that journey. You know, you have to be at the right starting line, and I don't want to have anyone left behind in that journey to a diagnosis. So, we've, we are, every program that I have, we have things in place to be able to do this, and if we have time to get to it, I'll talk about how we do this on scale for population-based health in New York City um, at that you know, as we expand newborn screening as an example to make sure no baby is left behind in the start to their life. Actually, maybe let's just do that because that's a fascinating question. And, and you know, I, as a lifelong New Yorker, I care deeply about the city. Yeah. Um, and would love to hear about 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 that program. Yeah, sure. So um, this was really based on my experience, which for me, from a career point of view, really was exactly what I wanted my career to be, what we did with SMA. We had led uh, my laboratory or my group in particular, the pilot studies for newborn screening with SMA that synergistically worked to get uh, the first treatment and ASO FDA approved because patients from that newborn screening were in the clinical trial. They were the most responsive. They had the best outcomes and really helped to drive and show, demonstrate um, how we could be very effective with treatments, especially if we started pre-symptomatically. So that, I've, I've continued to obsess about what's the next SMA? What can we do um, and, and it really, these diagnostics and therapeutics are very tightly linked is, is the point that I want to make. Um, so there are, as I catalog, I, I, you know, sort of think a lot about different diseases. And as I was inventorying those in my head one day, I thought, you know what, there are a lot of conditions that we already have very effective treatments available. And when we don't diagnose them, you know, they come to me, for instance, after a child has been seizing for five years, they've fried their brain, literally, they've destroyed their brain are now intellectually and irreversibly intellectually disabled. If I'd only known that, you know, at a few days of age, if I could have intervened, would I have had a different outcome? And so I've kind of obsessed about that and came to the conclusion that there are many conditions, genetically based conditions, where the answer is yes, we can definitely bend the curve and assure at least a better outcome, if not a really good outcome. And so I'd come up, I'd, I'd started this exercise about three years ago and first started with our community, that is our parents and our families, and, and got their input and feedback and then started starting 
talking to our doctors about this, uh, what I'm going to start telling you about. And and they universally said to me, Dr. Chung, you know, I'm not interested necessarily in Gattaca. So for those of you who have seen that movie, not interested necessarily in taking a, a heel prick from my baby and, you know, knowing if they're going to get Alzheimer's when they're 62 or prostate cancer when they're 55. Um, but the information that would affect you, that you can be certain of, that you can tell me that my young child is going to be affected and there's something you can do about it, that as a responsible parent, I want to know about that. I want the best health for my child. And that would really empower me uh, to, to help ensure that. So I started designing a new type of newborn screening, and that's one that's based on the same heel prick that we usually do, uh, but being able to do DNA sequencing as the the diagnostic method. Um, so we have to be these are these conditions I can only diagnose with DNA sequencing. Do that DNA sequencing, but to the your point of turnarounds, being able to at least eventually get that turnaround time to about the seven to ten days we do for usual newborn screening, and in the same way we do newborn screening to make it available to every single newborn. That is, you don't pay for this. This is something that's part of our healthcare, public healthcare system as newborn screening is, and that we have treatments and we immediately get those babies plugged into treatment. And if we do that, could we start the next generation of health? Could we be able to really sort of do a reset and, and hope that we could achieve much better, um, that we don't have to worry about delays to diagnosis or treatment? And so with this, um, we have, a, it's a completely optional. That is, no one's required to do it, but a study called Guardian to, to actually test and see, can we do that? Uh, how well do we do it? How much, uh, how important is it to parents and to providers and how effective is this? And also think about even some of the economic outcomes and in particular, think about what it does with health equity. Do we, do we end up having uh, improvements in outcome, but do they affect everyone equally? Or maybe even if we do it in this way, certain groups benefit more than others. Um, and so we've done that really internationally even. So I've got colleagues around the world who we've been conferring with to be able to get input from lots of people scientifically. We've had ethicists involved. As I said, parents are the core of this in terms of being part of the research team. Um, and even industry. Yeah, As I said, I believe you know a lot of this is an ecosystem in terms of there's technology and uh, informatics and machine learning to be able to do this on scale, reading out this information and doing it like almost instantaneously that we've brought really the power of the most brilliant minds together to do this. Um, and the goal is going to be to do this for 100,000 babies in New York City. And over time, I anticipate that we're going to be get better and better and in a good way that more and more conditions are going to be treatable. And so I've set this up so that we'll have infinite flexibility to be able to add new conditions as there are new treatments. And so um, this, this cycle time between treatment and diagnosis we can get down to almost instantaneous. Um, you know, as soon as we've got a treatment available, boom, we can make sure that we diagnose those children and get them over to treatment. Um, I hope in that way, if we can think about it from that point of view, um, this provides the infrastructure that we need, at least for genetic conditions, to be able to think about, again, I talked about sort of on-block. Um, this is one of those on-block enabling infrastructures from a public health and technology point of view that enables everyone to get their diagnosis and to move on to treatment. Yeah, I mean that's that's amazing. The scope of the ambition. <clears throat> I mean, even just within any of these individual dise diseases, the zebras you hunt, that sounds like an incredibly expensive enterprise um, and and complicated. And then when you think about that across all diseases, across a whole population, a city, a country, the world, um, where does the funding? I mean, who's funded most of your work? Is this 
is it is it the traditional government funding? Is it is it patient advocacy groups like donors who? Where does the money come from to keep this engine running? Yeah. So, um, like I said, and, and I'm very transparent about this, it takes an ecosystem to do this. And, you know, at different times and different project maturity, things come from different places. So, if you were to look down my CV, you'd see a combination of, I always have a lot of NIH funding. And, you know, that is both helpful in terms of providing dollars, but also to a certain extent, access to certain resources or consortia. Um, I will say, and I'm not meaning to diss NIH, um, but, you know, it, that you can usually not accomplish all that you want to accomplish in an NIH-specific aims, uh, what you promise in your grant with just NIH funds. Budgets get cut and um, things get more expensive, cost of living goes up, and so you need to supplement oftentimes and be creative about how you do so. And for certain very ambitious projects like the one I described, it will never, ever fit in with scope in terms of an NIH grant. And so um, there are ecosystems that include private foundations, oftentimes that are disease-focused, um, some of which may be um, sort of broader in terms of their scope. Um, but also there's, so there's a lot of foundations, private foundations who help to support this. There are, um, from a company point of view or industry point of view, individuals that support that either because they uh, have a therapy and so they want to be able to make sure patients get diagnosed and get to their therapy and, you know, be completely transparent. That's what their business model is based on is being able to sell their treatment to patients. Um, as we do, and let me be also very transparent, as we do do these studies, no one is obliged to take any treatment whatsoever, even if they're diagnosed. Um, they always have all options, and we always give them all options equally as we're doing that. Um, and within this, you know, there are some cases just individual people, um, just literally individual donors who say, you know, what you're doing is really amazing, and, uh, you know, I want to give you the runway to just be creative and do what you need to do. Um, and, you know, there are certain, um, I don't in particular have Howard Hughes, but, you know, the Hughes also supports science to people, not projects, is, you know, sort of the terminology is being able to just be creative and have that runway. So, it takes an ecosystem in terms of doing it. And, and uh, on the scope of the things that we're talking about, oftentimes millions of dollars, even for just one project. Right. But let's maybe dig into that ecosystem a little bit on the, on the industry side. I mean, obviously, our office at Columbia Technology Ventures has worked with you for, for many, many years. And, and our role in some ways is to help, help with that bridge. But uh, you've mentioned that industry you know, can provide funding, and sometimes industry also has an incentive to do so, framed one way, um, because they've got the therapies, but also actually has the therapies, which means that if you discover something, then then it can get treated at least from the patients that have access to, the, to those therapies. Are there other reasons that I mean, you've worked with industry repeatedly throughout your career it's a, with uh, many of the you know large and small biopharma companies and some of the venture backed startups. But what what about working with industry? Do you find, like, why do you do that? Yeah, so I guess one of the things I've realized over time is there are different cultures um, that also evolve and talent is located in different um, positions. You know, it's in differential places and resources in terms of access to data or technologies are located in different places. And uh, I'll say that I don't think there's any one solution as I think about the ecosystem of how, whether it's public, private, philanthropic, uh, academic, you know, no matter what dimension you want to look at. So as an example, I'll just you know, throw out some of the strengths. At places like universities, like at Columbia, you have some really smart people. Um, I, I'll include myself. I don't think I'm an idiot, but, you know, there are people, you know, even smart 
smarter than me in terms of the particular niche they have, oftentimes very, very narrow, but, um, you know, pointed in the right direction, extremely powerful. And you have incredibly uh, talented people that are training and that are bright and energetic and young and have young brains. And then, of course, we have patients and, and access to patients and real world data. And that's no joke. I mean, the real world part of this, you know, uh, pharma just doesn't have that literally that lived experience that I have as a clinician to know what life is like and know what unmet medical needs really, really are and to have a sense of how many people are out there and how we can, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, what's an outcome measure we would use. You know, all of that real world um, life data is, is there. So those are academics. Industry, on the other hand, oftentimes has ability. I'll, I'll admit that, you know, we have a lot of bureaucracy. There are things that are slower here. There are things you can't do. Pharma just is nimble, right? I mean, it's a business. If you can't be able to be flexible and to move and achieve your goals um, that are oftentimes, you know, you've got a very specific timeline and you're going to do go, no go, depending on whether or not you hit a certain milestone, uh, people move. Um, you know, they're incentivized to move. They're not on a 10-year clock. They're on, you know, hit the bottom line. And that just creates different people sort of gravitate do that to that area. They're they're motivated, they're incentivized, they get up in the morning in a different way. Um, what I love seeing are people that are mission-driven and in that environment. Those are the people I find that are most effective. Um, and increasingly, what I find interesting is that because these rare disorders are so common collectively, again, 10% of people have um, one of these rare genetic conditions, people start their careers and all of a sudden find themselves to have one of those rare genetic conditions either for themselves or for their child. And they've become, for me, over time, some of the most powerful advocates as kind of nucleating centers wherever they are. And some of them are in the public domain, and so they have ways of being able to move things in a federal level and get things through legislature and the Hill. Um, there are other people that, um, you know, over time in industry have been able to, you know, continue being that voice at the table of urgency and continue to get things moving. And in terms of industry, they oftentimes have access to data that are not published. They're not in the public domain. They're behind their firewalls. They're not about to share them. And they may not share even with me the primary level data, but I can ask a question that they can answer for me based mm -hmm. on what they've seen before. And sometimes, you know, we have a sense that it's going to, you know, some technology that they can use for a high throughput drug screen is something that they've got access to that I don't have access to. Um, they've got ways of manipulating mice where they can just do it much faster. They've got interesting ways of being able to look at behavior in quantitative scalable ways that I may not have. So there are all sorts of sort of modules of technology that can be helpful. And, and I have to say, um, you know, they're, they're talking about bright people. They have some of the brightest people as well. Um, so, you know, they're not coasting. Um, they're working really hard. I think some people, you know, will use the term, oh, you sold out and went into industry and now you're just on cruise control. I actually don't think that's it at all. Um, I think some of those are, like I said, they're, they they just, I think have many people have seen there's a different way to get things done or there are other, you know, mechanisms where they can use their creativity. And so it's, it's just really fun. I love brainstorming with those folks. I love them, what I learn from them, because I have to say they teach me as much as I teach them. Yeah. And, and startups are sort of a subset of that industry focus, uh, that industry group, because it's a, it, I always think of that as sort of being a combination of the two worlds in some ways, yeah. um, because they're just so early in the, in the chain. I know, I, I believe you've been involved in a, a variety of startups over the course of your career, and you're currently in the middle of potentially launching one with your colleague, Chen Zheng, at, at 
Columbia. Do you, do you want to tell us a little bit about, about that effort and, and sort of what motivated you to get involved? Uh, so, um, yeah, startups are, like you said, a very unique culture. It's it's really interesting and watching companies go through growing pains is um, both fun and painful. But it is it is interesting to see in terms of the expansion, everything from HR issues to anyway, supply chain issues recently. But um, so Chalin is um, just a really bright guy. Um, he has for a long time been involved in RNA biology and understands that really deeply. Um, and I'm going to circle back to the SMA story because S- that SMA first treatment with an ASO started with Adrian Kramer out at Cold Spring Harbor. Chowlin actually I'm worked. Sorry, you said you said ASO. What is ASO? Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you for asking. So, um, an allele-specific oligonucleotide. So it's a small piece of um, nucleic acid that we use therapeutically that can often be used to either in certain cases, very certain cases can alter the way genes are cut and pasted together or so-called splicing. Um, in some cases can be used to determine how much of a gene is expressed or even okay. turn down how much of a gene is expressed. But anyway, to manipulate genes in a, in a way. And that's with SMA, that's the piece that essentially allowed the, if you catch kids early enough, it allows them to, to fix the issue. Yeah. Yeah. In that particular case, we use a very unique, um, there happened to be essentially two copies of the gene for SMA. And we, even though the first one is dead, we kind of resurrect the second one, which is on its, you know, kind of last legs. We, We figure out ways to amp it up and to be able to express more of the protein from that second gene. Um, and so with that uh, genetic trickery, if you will, Chowlin has had a lot of experience thinking about, you know, how to do that. Um, he's focused most of his career on the academic side in terms of being able to use that to understand disease processes better. Um, but, you know, got the idea because he'd been watching what had happened on the therapeutic side that ASOs um, may have a near-term opportunity because we have a lot of experience with them with safety and efficacy. And I think some of the other gene therapies or gene editing strategies are, you know, while they're big and bold, they still have a ways to go in terms of proving efficacy. And so this is, I think of it oftentimes as if it may not always be a permanent solution because you have to keep repeatedly dosing, uh, but it gives us a nice bridge into something that may be a permanent solution. So Chamelin saw that opportunity. And I do want to give Chowlin credit because it's really um, most of him that's the, on the basic science side of things, thought about how he could um, use his informatic skills to be able to target not just any gene, because any this won't work for any gene, uh, but to be able to identify genes for which this strategy might work, where he could kind of turn up the volume on one copy of a gene, so that if you're missing, most of us have two copies of our genes, um, and you need two copies for many conditions, to prevent many conditions, and so a mutation in just one of the two copies can cause problems. You haven't got enough. It's as if the volume is turned down too low. So, Chowlin has ways of thinking thinking through and looking through the genome to see what genes might you be able to turn up the volume and exactly molecularly, how can you use these nucleic acids to turn up the volume? So you add Chowlin's expertise in that um, with my expertise just in knowing a lot of human genetics and human diseases and what we what we need therapies for, and you put those two together and, and then start thinking about what might be good targets for using these technologies. And so that's really the marriage of those two is what's come together and is still forming, uh, still mature in terms of being able to do that. And uh, with that, you know, 
all of the, like you were alluding to, the growing pains in terms of thinking about how much data you need to be able to demonstrate that this is going to work. How do you go forward from cells to mice to people? Um, how do you make sure you're doing it safely? How do you raise the capital to be able to go through each of those steps? And I have to, I'll, I'll be very blunt, you know, if we're time stamping this in July 2022, uh, how do you do this in a market that's not so conducive to doing this? Um, so, you know, it's it's not easy. Right. No, it's doing startups is definitely not for the faint of heart. And I, we've had some faculty who have, you know, become faculty entrepreneurs and are extraordinarily excited about it and go on to have great outcomes and say, like, I love that and I want this to be part of my life going forward. Some of them even take a sabbatical to go, you know, run the company and then come back. I don't think we've actually had anyone that I can think of who's left to not come back to do that. Um, but but by and large, you know, people do come back to academia. Uh, we've had other faculty members who go down this road and, you know, do their first startup and come back and say, never ever again. <laughs> that was exhausting <laughs> and humiliating and frustrating, and I'm going to go back to the bench. Um, you've seemed like you've managed to find a nice balance between those two, being able to to work with industry where industry is useful, to launch startups where startups are useful, and to continue to push with both patients and research. And that must be an extraordinarily hard balance to maintain, let alone I, you know, you're, I, I have to imagine if you're a young graduate student or medical student or a young faculty member, and, and, and this isn't going to sound like I'm flattering you, I don't mean to be, but um, you've got to be a, like a, a really cool role model, but also a little intimidating because um, <laughs> <laughs> the sheer number of things you're doing all the time. Like, how have you managed to find the balance even within your professional career, let alone between your professional career and your home life? Yeah. So I, I think that's probably something I'm still working on, uh, truth be told. Um, I guess within this, I, 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 for my professional career, I guess I just look at different levers that you can push to be able to get to the goal. And, and I don't, I, you know, I always am very clear about declaring conflicts and things like that so that it's clear to everyone, you know, what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, who I'm doing it with, things like that. Um, but I, I just so much, the older I get or the more experience I get, the more I appreciate how many levers there are in a good way and what levers are best for, you know, which use, you know, what you need to do for which purpose. And, um, um, and so we've had times where we have to go to the FDA for something, or we have times when we've, you know, we're going to launch something and we've got investors who are on a quarterly call expecting us to have met a milestone. And so, you know, we need to really all pull in and be able to hit that milestone. And, um, so there are times when it does become intense and, and, you know, I won't kid about that. And so as we rearrange priorities in terms of doing things, um, that's what we do. And we don't drop any balls. We don't, you know, leave any patients behind that happen to have other crises and are in the emergency room. And that's kind of the challenge is juggling all of those things. Over time, the way I've learned to do that is I build a good team. I maintain a good team. Um, and that as a team, we accomplish those things. So things I might've done myself 20 years ago. Now we have, you know, we're three deep on the bench to be able to accomplish those, to make sure that we've got, you know, capacity. And I, I talk a lot in my group about surge, you know, so we, we can shift and we can be nimble and we can surge and meet whatever, you know, the, the fire is we have to put out that day. Right. I, I, I have to, um, I know we're, I'm going to let you go at a, another question or so, but, um, I was interviewing um, Rudy Leibel yesterday for this podcast, and um, we were talking about genetics in the way that that are you know things that we often think about as being our personalities and you know fundamentally who we are as people actually turn out to to be genetically linked or biologically linked and and you know what does that mean about our perception of ourselves? But I think your name came up, and uh, Dr. Leibel's 
just broke into a huge smile, which is actually not all that rare, but, but in this case, um, and I didn't realize you were his student. Um, back in the day. So at some point, you know, this team of people that you're describing in your lab who who can, you know, take the hill, who can like tackle a problem and really just go all in on it and work together as a team, that like young Dr. Wendy Chung was actually that person in Dr. Leibel's lab. <laughs> and now you're here at Columbia working, to, you know, continuing to work together throughout the rest of your careers. Like that, uh, how did you end up in his lab in the in the first place? And 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 that seems like it must have had a, like what influence has that had on your career? Yeah. Um, so I'll give you the short version of the story. But when I was starting in medical school and as in my MD-PhD program was the year the Human Genome Project started. And I knew I wanted to do, or I thought I wanted to do, inborn errors of metabolism and metabolic conditions. And I wanted to be able to marry both the rarity of metabolic conditions, but also be able to study something that was a real public health problem. And so that ended up being obesity and type 2 diabetes. And at the time, uh, Rudy Leibel was at Rockefeller University where I was doing my PhD work and um, at the time working on a really hard problem, but that was to identify the gene underlying the so-called OBOB or obese mouse. Um, that was kind of the holy grail, right? Could you find the gene for obesity? Um, and there was another gene that, or another mouse, and we didn't know it at the time, but it was called diabetes. It was its cousin. So, Trying to, you know, sort of, as you said, assault that hill and identify the genes for those two conditions. Those were the early days where I still remember as a graduate student, if you can imagine, we had polymerase chain reaction had just been discovered, but we didn't have automated thermocyclers. I was sitting there as a graduate student taking, you know, these little tubes and going through a heating block to a bucket of ice to, you know, uh, cycling back and forth by hand, the temperatures with a timer every two minutes. Um, Talk about, you know, good use of graduate student time. Um, So, you know, in the old days, we were doing that. We were cutting up chromosomes. We were, you know, doing hardcore type of, we called them yaks and backs at the time, or yeast and bacterial artificial chromosomes and narrowing in on these genes. But that whole, there was a certain excitement about, you know, again, getting to the holy grail of identifying ultimate were leptin and leptin receptor, which opened up a whole new biology of understanding how we regulate body weight, how our bodies do that. And um, anyway, I won't go into all of that, but that was the first sort of success story in terms of using genetics to understand biology and think of it, you know, what we could do from there. So from that, um, and I think this is what you were alluding to, you know, Rudy was also for me and still is to this day an incredibly important mentor to me, um, you know, just really helping me appreciate how you put medicine and science together, uh, how you navigate, you know, various different things that, you know, people have to do in their careers. And so, uh, when Rudy came to Columbia, he came to Columbia, let me think about this, I guess in 1998, Um, was at a transitional time for myself when I would be starting residency. And so, um, you know, was trying to decide around the country and interestingly enough, between pediatric medicine and pathology residencies, I knew I was going to do genetics, but there were many different ways to get to genetics um, through different, uh, initially you had to do a residency in another area first. Um, And one of the things that, again, Rudy is a mentor and John Driscoll, who was the chairman at the time, uh, sort of had faith in me to say, you know what, you know, Wendy, we we just we're going to bet on that horse um, or that zebra, maybe. Um, <laughs> 
But, uh, you know, she knows what she's doing and she's not going to follow a traditional path, but we're going to just let her do what she needs to do. And so they really gave me a lot of freedom. We actually didn't even have a genetics training program at the time. Um, You know, we had the commitment to let me just be me. And so we developed a genetics training program for me here. And um, anyway, with that uh, sort of is my long love affair with being here at Columbia. And it's worked out pretty well. If you want to, he, uh, you should listen to the podcast where he talks about you and about the role, you know, that, that finding incredibly talented and brilliant, you know, young minds that think about things differently and, and sort of encouraging their careers. I know that you've done the same with many of your students. I, when I think, so my last question for you, which is something I've asked others and, you know, because I've heard from listeners that, um, many of them are undergraduates or young graduate students, but in particular undergrads who, who are thinking about what, what do they want to do with their lives? Um, and I know you've been you've been uh, interested in science and pursuing science since back in high school, and you won the Westinghouse Prize back in high school. And and um, but was there ever a time when you thought when you when there were something else you thought you might want to do? Like was were there alternate career paths that you didn't explore and and think back on and think, wow, you know how different your life would have been? Yeah. So. Um... So I was always, I think, very analytically oriented. So, uh, you know, STEM, I guess I'll put it in that area. I I never would have been a painter. Um, That still to this day won't work out for me. Um, I do remember very distinctly, if if you were to say what is my natural aptitude, my natural aptitude is actually in mathematics. And and I remember very distinctly in college um, going to my mathematics professor before I figured out what I was going to major in, what I was going to do, and saying, you know, I'm really good at this math stuff, so what can I do with this? And um, he told me, well, uh, you would be great as an actuarial. You could work for an insurance company. You could, you know, figure out sort of different rates for things. And I thought about that and I said, really? Like, that's what you do with a mathematics career? And I said, yeah, that's kind of a waste of time. I'm not spending, like, I'm not going to work hard to be able to do that. I have no interest in that. Um, I did, however, maintain my interest in mathematics. And so I tried figuring out what was sort of an application of that as an undergrad and had, you know, kind of an odd but dual. I was also, you know, sort of had time on my hands, you know, meaning my major requirements wasn't hard uh, in biochemistry. And so I wanted something to challenge myself and ended up taking up economics as well. Um, so those two things. And you can actually see if, if you think about it there, based on that training as an undergrad, um, you know, ended up understanding the business side of things. The economics wasn't necessarily with the intention of going into business, but I very soon got to understand finances and the business side of things and how one could look at this analytically using those mathematical skills. And um, at the time, I remember very distinctly um, that, you know, computers were literally just starting. And one of the interesting things was I had this computer phobia. Um, You know, I hadn't sort of, I wasn't one of those people in junior high school that was, you know, in fact, people really weren't learning to code in my generation, but, you know, that was computer oriented. And so uh, someone told me, Wendy, you've got to get over that. So um, as a senior in college, I remember, you know, forcing myself to take the CS100 class with the engineers just to be able to understand what that was and get over the phobia. And once I got in, I was like, oh, this is just a logic class. This is trivial. You know, like, what was I ever afraid of? Um and I think if I'd been born, you know, 10, 20 years later, I actually would have turned out slightly differently. But um, to this day, I still use those analytical mathematical skills and genetics. Um, and we do a lot of data analysis. And the thing that really thrills me now is to think of medicine as being data-driven, um, not just experiential, but really data-driven. And I hope that's what we do for our next generation of practitioners. 
Dr. Chung, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks, Oren. 